Okay, so uh, James, James chapter 2. I hope you have it. Let's jump into it. I'm so excited about it. And by the way, while you're getting ready to read of the, I was going to say that there's online notes. Uh, if you're using your Uversion app, you can search for us. We're in there under events. Uh, but there's a link to it on our Facebook page. So you've got some notes and you can add your own notes to it. Because um, I want to tell you something. I'm not so worried about you enjoying this message. I just want you to understand it and apply it. Okay, because I'm just up here trying to do something that I think you will enjoy. We're going to waste everybody's time because that's not what this is about, folks. This is about learning and growing. And the job, the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, I have spent most of my adult life. I answered the call to preach when I was 15 and have been studying, studying. And so I gathered notes that I made even way. I gathered notes from a sermon that I preached in this church in 1991. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is I spent a lot of time and a lot of hours this week. I've spent a lot of time and a lot of hours through my life on this passage. This passage that I'm going to read to you is one that has sparked a lot of mm, stress and a lot of controversy in the church and in the world for over 500 years, especially. Uh, but it's really quite simple. They stress over James's teaching here. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you already know this. They stress over James's teaching here as it relates to Paul's teaching. Uh, Paul states that we are justified by faith apart from works. And that was the cry of the Reformation. Sola fide. Faith alone. Faith plus nothing. You add one work of yours to your salvation, it ceases to be a gift and God owes you to it. So we understand that. That's the way Paul approaches. But now it sounds like here that James is saying that it's works. Actually, what he says is not that. We're going to see that James says that faith apart from works is useless. It's really simple when you understand that they're saying the same thing. They're approaching it from two different angles. Are you with me? Now, I'm going to say this as I read this text because one of the more important things that we do here in praying and singing together, one of the most important things is when we read the Word together. This is the Word of God. And I'm going to read it. Uh, and I want you to keep this in mind. And like my sixth grade teacher used to, for some reason, tell me a lot, I always come back. If there's anything, I can't remember anything else she taught, but I do remember this. She would say to me that I need to put my thinking cap on. I'm not sure what that was, but I know what she meant. So we got to put our thinking caps on. We got to think a little bit so we can understand it. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of our understanding and our hearts so that we understand this. But then, as you're going to see, we got to do something with it. All right, here we go. Let's start reading in verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. 
And I will show you, underline it, my faith. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart, apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. All right, let's open this up, amen? Ah, this is powerful. So uh, the thing about it is it seems like James and Paul, to some people, are contradicting themselves. And that's just because they're approaching from two different angles. Now, there's no evidence. Now, you gotta, if you want to learn, you want to grow, you got to get into this. There's no evidence that James and Paul had read each other's letters. And that, you know, Paul was writing this and James is like, well, hey, I'm going to straighten this out. And he wrote that. There's no evidence that they even saw each other's letters uh, because they lived kind of at the same time. And they were writing some of these things at the same time. And they were in different areas. OK, Paul is mainly working among Gentiles. James is mainly ministering among people who had grown up Jewish. Uh, so because they're in different places and they're writing at the same time. There was no Internet. They couldn't read each other's tweets and posts. They didn't Skype or Zoom call each other. So it's like all of this is going on at the same time. And what the, what the Holy Spirit is doing is giving all of us for all time a balanced view of all this. This book is one story and it speaks with harmony. You just got to understand it in a sensible way. Uh, just like you would understand any other part of literature. So it's... So easy for us to get things out of balance, right? I'm going to use that word. Sometimes I say out of whack. You know, it's like you just whack me upside the head to get me back in whack. You know, you, you always say that's out of whack. You never say it's, well, you know, hey, it's working good. It's in whack. Nobody says that. <laughs> but so, so I'm not going to get confused worse than I am now. I'll just use the word balance. It's so easy to get out of balance, okay? And uh, that's what they're trying to, what all this put together helps us is to find balance. Um, because we sometimes find, or if you're like me, you find yourself kind of out of balance on something. It's like some kind of teaching or some kind of habit or some kind of whatever it is. I start to finally see what other people could see all along. I finally begin to see that I'm getting out of balance. And then when I correct it, lo and behold, if I'm not careful, I will overcorrect and get out of balance over here. And that happens a lot. There were some of these that had grown up under the strict legalism of the Mosaic law. When they understand that it's by faith, it's by God's grace through faith. Some of them just went bananas. And it's like, we well, it doesn't matter what we do then. We can do about anything as long as we just believe. Okay? That's what some were saying. And James is going to have to deal with that. 
Now, Paul is still dealing with a lot of people who think, no, you got to keep the law plus. It's what I do plus what he did. No, it's all what he did, and I've just got to receive it as a free gift that he paid for, and I receive it by faith. And we're going to talk about what real faith is. That's what this whole message is about. Finding balance is the key to this whole thing. You know, isn't that that way with a lot of things in life, on a lot of different topics? It's just balance, okay? Uh, so Paul deals with those. Let's get it one more time. You ready? Okay, this will go faster if, if you look like you're ready anyway. <laughs> Paul deals with those who think they can work their way and earn their own salvation. That's who Paul's confronting. James, on the other hand, is dealing with those who have gone to the other extreme, thinking that all they have to do is believe the right stuff, certain things, and that's enough. Paul reminds us that we are all sinners, no matter how religious you think you are. That we're all sinners, and that no matter how hard you work, you're still a sinner. And he's telling the sinner how to become a saint. James is talking to saints already. He addressed them as brothers, right? Brothers and sisters. So James is telling the saint how to become more Christ-like, how to become sanctified, more set apart for Christ. That's what James is telling us. James, uh, Paul makes it clear. Paul makes it clear how to get from earth to heaven. James is showing us how to bring a little bit of heaven back down to earth. Paul teaches us how to receive eternal life. James is showing us how to live out eternal life right here, right now, starting here, starting now. So to be saved, I'm talking about salvation. This is the doctrine of salvation. In theological terms, it's called soteriology, just so you know. All right, so what does it mean to be saved? We throw that around all the time, and we just assume everybody knows what we're talking about. Okay, to be saved, literally, it just means to be delivered, to be delivered, We're delivered from the sin and from the consequences of sin and being separated. Sin is about being separated from God, being spiritually dead, separated from God. Now, there are three parts or three tenses, if you're following along in the online notes, uh, three tenses to our salvation. All right. So the Bible's very clear. And James or John said in 1 John chapter 5 that he wrote these things that you may know that you have eternal life. When Paul talks about you have been saved, it's in a Greek tense. It means it happened at a point of time in the past. So it is proper to say past, present, future when we're talking about your salvation. Now, please stay with this because you can speak like this. If you have been saved, you have received Christ as your Savior. You put all your faith in him. You can say, speaking of the past, You can say, I have been saved. That's past perfect. It has happened in the past. I am saved uh, from the penalty of sin. That penalty is being separated from God. That I have been saved and I can know that I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I can know that my name's written in heaven. I can know that I have a home in heaven when I die because I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Jesus is living in my heart. This is called being justified or justification. It's the doctrine of ju- the teaching of justification. God looks at you just as if you never sinned, okay? That's kind of a simplistic way to put it, but we haven't got time to go into all of that. That he has declared the guilty sinner not guilty. Your sin, your penalty, your guilt has been atoned for. It's been removed. Your sin was placed on Christ. He paid for it. And Christ's righteousness has been deposited into your account, justified. So it's proper that you can say that. I have been saved. 
But also speaking of your salvation, you can also say it correctly this way. I am being saved. And that's present progressive. I am being saved right now because I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved or delivered from the power of sin in my life. I still live in a sin-cursed flesh. I still deal with a fleshly nature. I live in a sin-cursed world. And I live with a whole bunch of sin-cursed people. But it means that now I am being delivered day by day and day in and day out from the power of sin to control my life. I don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. That I am becoming more like Christ. I am growing and being more set apart from Him. And becoming more Christ-like. This is called, in theological terms, sanctification. That all has to, be do, has to do with being set apart. This is continually happening in my life. Now, if you were to follow me, if I were to follow you around, you know, and even especially if we could read each other's thoughts, that not everything we're thinking or doing is exactly like Jesus Christ yet. So this is ongoing in my life. There may be moments that things happen and God uses things to bump you up a bunch of notches in your walk, in your sanctification. But this is continually delivering us from the power of sin to, to affect our lives. And it's also proper to say, I, am, I will be saved. So I have been saved, justification. I'm being saved, sanctification. And then it's also correct to say, speaking of future tense, I will be saved. That is, I will be saved from the very presence of all sin forever in heaven. I'm going to be delivered from this sin-cursed flesh. And I'm going to be delivered, saved, from this sin-cursed world. And I will be made perfect. And I will be in God's perfect world, perfect heaven, forever and ever and ever. And that's called glorification. So, amen. So we can say, I have been justified. I'm being sanctified. But we're all looking for that glorification where we're going to get to bask in his glory and he's going to bring us to himself. Amen. That's what Paul said, that even our bodies are groaning for that in chapter 8. That time that this happens. So, uh, since Paul teaches very clearly, and we believe we are justified by faith, right, in God's grace. Um, so here's what we have. Uh, Okay, well, we're justified by faith plus nothing. You add one work of your own to earn your salvation, you don't have grace anymore. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus paid it all. He didn't just pay part of it. Now think about it. If it was that way, and you did actually pay part of your own salvation, what would it be like in heaven? I know a bunch of you come up to me and you'd say, you know, Jesus had to do a whole lot more for you than he did me to get you here. And then somebody else say, yeah, well, he had to do more for you. And that don't sound like heaven. That sounds like Hartville. And Hartville ain't heaven. We know, right? He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. And that was the cry of the Reformation. Sola fide, faith alone. So faith plus nothing. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in God's grace plus no works of our own. We believe that. But here's the question that James is putting to us. What kind of faith do you have? Do you have real saving faith, genuine faith, or is it a counterfeit faith? That's what we're going to get into here. Uh, and so he mentions here, you know, is it all talk? Is it a dead faith? Three kinds of faith here that I'm going to bring out. Uh, first of all, uh, and, and we've got to understand it and apply it. All right, are you ready? First of all, the first type of faith that he talks about here is what we'll call, uh, he calls a dead faith. 
And dead faith is not saving faith. Dead faith. Even in the early church, there were those who claimed they said they had saving faith. But they only possessed a cheap counterfeit. Notice what he says in verse 14. Let's go through it. He says, what good is it, brothers? Or he's speaking to brothers and sisters there. He says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Notice what he said. Can that faith save him? But here's what it is. It says, he says, he says, or she says, it is a said faith. They're talking it. They're saying it. But there ain't nothing. I know I'm using bad grammar there, but it just feels right. There is nothing anywhere around them that supports what they're saying. They have faith, they say, but there are no works. There is no fruit. There is no evidence on their part to back it up. People with dead faith, he's telling us, they substitute words for deeds. Right? In other words, they're all talk. Their walk does not measure up to their talk. That's what he's saying. They say it, but they haven't got anything. They don't have anything to back it up. The question is on the table now. Right? Can, and this is proper with the Greek, can that kind of faith save him? Can that kind of faith, this is what we're talking about. And all the grammar indicates this is, this is the essence. Can that kind of faith, is that real working, saving faith? Well, he gives a simple example here in verse 15. He says, okay, I'm going to give you an example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking daily food, and one of you come up to him and say, oh, man, I feel bad for you. I want you to have peace, not all this conflict and hard times. Be warmed and be filled. I just want you to have enough clothes where you feel warm and get enough food. And, and yet you just turn and walk off. Be warmed and filled. And he says that you don't give them the things needed for the body. In other words, you've got extra clothes. You've got extra food. You said you wanted them to be warmed and filled. Go in peace. Do you really want that? Not very badly. Because you didn't do anything. You just talked it. He asked the question, what good is that? You Listen, you didn't do them one bit of good. All you did was say words. It had no impact. That's the illustration he's using. When you say you have faith, but there's nothing in your life to support that. There are no works. It is a said faith. So once again, can that faith... By itself, can that. So when, it, when the word faith, listen to me. In the, word, in the Bible, many times the word believe is also the same Greek word that is translated faith. It's the same root word. And so some people get the idea that faith is just you believe the right stuff. I believe that. But faith is a deeper belief than just mental assent to certain facts being true. That this kind of faith we're going to see involves trusting, submitting, relying. Uh, so he's bringing that up. That faith, is that what we're... He, he's not saying that we're saved by works. He's not really saying that we're even saved by faith plus works. He's saying that we are saved by a faith that does work. Now, 
as I said, going back to Paul's teaching, we believe justification by faith. That's very important that we understand that. Without works of the law, okay? Can we document this? Here comes scripture. We're going to have quite a bit of it. You ready? This is Bible study. If I'm not teaching, you know, I, well, you're going to start teaching more than preaching. If a, your preacher, whoever you are out there, is it teaching anything? What is he doing? Preaching means to proclaim the word of God. So we got to teach it. We're proclaiming it. All right? So get your thinking cap on. Here we go. Uh, Romans 3.28, Paul tells us, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Now he's talking about real faith here. He's talking to people who thought, well, I just try to keep the law and I'm okay. James actually has already told us that if you keep the whole law and offend in one point, you're as guilty as you broke all of it. Even James said that. Okay, come back here now. Paul also says, as we know, one of our favorite verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10, he says, for by grace. So we're saved by the grace of God. When you see grace of God, you think of Jesus dying on the cross and paying for your sins and giving you what you don't deserve and could never earn. That's grace. Faith is forsaking all I trust him. We receive God's grace by faith. Grace is what saves us. Faith is how we receive it. Grace is the gift. Faith are the hands that take the gift to yourself and receive it. So he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. How we saved? By God's grace. How we receive it? Through faith. He said, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Boom, gift. Wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Romans 6, 23. But anyway, he says it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. Right? Remember what I was telling you all ago? How that if it was even some of our works, some of you guys would go strutting around heaven. And you'd say, Moon, you know what? Whew. You know, you know he had to do a lot to get you here. Not so much me. You'd be bragging. I mean, it would just be miserable. I don't know if I could. Never mind. But it's going to be perfect when we get there. Even those obnoxious brothers and sisters are going to be made perfect. And we're going to love being together. We're still growing, right? You know, like those people, you know, those people who like talk all the time and go on. Hey, they just keep right on talking when you're trying to interrupt and say something. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, <laughs> we're all going to be perfect there. There'll be no boasting. There'll be no anything. And then he goes on. Now, listen to what Paul says. So it's by grace through faith. Listen to what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. And you know that word workmanship is a Greek word poema. It means it's like a work of art. We get the word poem actually from that, which is art with words, right? But it's like you're his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for what? What's the purpose? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the faith that we have that receives the grace is supposed to end up right here producing this in our life because it was always God's plan that we should walk in this and have this fruit coming out of our lives. So Paul and James, wouldn't you agree, are saying the same thing. And in the example he gives, words and good intentions are not enough, don't really profit anything. Paul taught that faith works. He taught that. In fact, right here, there was a big controversy. Uh, it, it seems weird to us, but among some of the Jews that grew up following Moses and Abraham, one of the big signs that God gave Abraham, and it was fulfilled in Christ, when he told this old man 
who was way past, and his wife were way past childbearing, that you're going to have a son, and through this son is going to be one, the seed, a descendant that's going to be a blessing to all nations. He was talking about Christ. What God had just done is separated out a man, and through this man is going to come the fulfillment of the promise that he made back in the Garden of Eden when he said that the seed of the woman is going to crush the enemy's head. So he separated out Abraham and through you. And so since Abraham was past childbearing, he's like, uh, oh, yeah, there's one more thing. Abraham believed him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul's going to use that as an illustration, and so is James. But there's a thing that God asked Abraham to do, and he, he, uh, he uh, asked him and all his descendants because as a sign and a symbol of the fact that they trust him, they had to, all the males had to be circumcised. I know that sounds weird, and I know it sounds gross, but that's the Bible, okay? Uh, and I'm just going to be honest with you here. This, this was, this was a, a, not a, a fun or easy thing, but it's something they took very serious. Now, when they come through Christ, uh, when Christ has come and, and, and they begin to trust him for salvation, you know, they're looking back saying, now, wait a minute. You can't just be saved uh, that easy. Uh, you men have got to be circumcised. I, this, I'm telling you, this is what the Bible teaches, yeah? That they were, they were struggling with that. And that was going to make things kind of tough spreading the gospel. Would you like to receive eternal life? Would you like to receive the gift of God has already paid for you? Oh, there's one catch. That's a pretty big catch. <laughs> Especially to the grown Gentile men that they were reaching for Christ. I'm just being honest with you, okay? I'm not trying to be crude. I'm bringing out here what Paul's talking about. And that's what he said. He said, it's not works of the law. It never was really about that. That was a symbol and that was a sign of one that would be born. And Christ even fulfilled that. God doesn't care whether you are or not. You can be or you cannot be. God doesn't care. So, all right. Now, you ready for the verse? Galatians 5, 6. He says, for in Christ, in Christ, you've trusted Christ. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's work. But here's what does count. Faith. But only faith doing what? Working. Huh? Faith working through what? Love. Faith working through love. There's going to be some evidence that faith is real. It's going to produce love. God doesn't care whether you guys are circumcised or not. But he does care if you say you have faith in Christ that you're loving one another. And they weren't acting very loving toward each other. Yeah, let's get that down. Let's understand this. James' example here is also an expression of love. You have someone that doesn't have clothes and doesn't have food and you just talk to them. You've got clothes and food and you don't help them. You're not showing what? Love. You're not. Faith is not working. So, so what, what James is emphasizing is a dead faith. It's a talked faith. It's a said faith. This is the same thing. John, let's bring in another disciple here. Amen. Let's bring in John in 1 John three seventeen. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love, how does God's love abide in him? So this goes along with what James was saying and what Paul was saying. You notice how some of them are pulling from same type illustrations and, and using them and applying them from different angles. Do you see that? He goes on to say in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk because it ain't real. It does no good, but in deed and truth. If you're going to love, you're going to talk it. If you really got it, 
If you've got, if you've got the noun love, it's going to translate into the verb love, where you're going to do something. And that same thing that they're talking about here. So the question again, can I back up? I know you love to hear that. Don't worry, I planned on backing up. We're still moving forward by backing up. But I just want to emphasize something. The question on the table, remember that? In verse 14, can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? You know, he just says, you have faith. I've got, uh, you know, in other words, he says, if he has, uh, if he says he has faith, he says it, but he doesn't have any works. Can that faith, that kind of faith save him? The implied answer is no, it's not real. The kind of faith that does not result in some changed life is a false declaration. And that's why he says that kind of faith is a dead faith. Dead people, dead things do no work. Right? Dead faith does you no good. You're just talking it, but it's not alive. Okay? It's not alive at all. The person with dead faith has only an intellectual experience. True faith brings life, right? That's what Jesus said in John 3, 16, that you may, that whosoever believes may have, you know, that he loved us so much that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting what? Life. And life is at work in us. This is dead. This is dead. He came to give us life, okay? Where there's life, there will be growth and there will be fruit, okay? Dead faith is counterfeit. It's counterfeit. It lulls the person into a false sense of relationship with God and a false confidence of eternal life. It's very serious. So I need to examine myself to see if I'm just talking about it or if I really have it. Okay? Is it a living faith or is it dead faith? Okay, I want to shock you a little bit now. And it's going to go quicker here. Hopefully. He wants to shock his readers. To illustrate the point further, he talks about another kind of faith. In verse 18, he says... You will say, you have faith, I have works. Now, some people want to debate on where this quote ends. But I think the way most translations have it is, is correct. Someone will say, and here's what they say. You have faith, I have works. So James' answer to them is, Well, you show me your faith apart from works. All right, you say you've got faith, let's see it. Without works, how are they going to do it? Right, they can't. But then he says, not that I'll show you my works. What does he say I'll show you? Not I'm going to say it, I'm going to show it. Let's read it. I will show you what? My faith. How? By my works. If you say it, do you show it? So he says, you say you got faith, let's see it. Without works, you can't do it. But he says, what I'm going to show you is not my works. I'm going to show you my faith. But the avenue that we're going down so you get there is by the works. That's how you see the faith. It all is two sides of the same coin. It's not based on works with James. It's based on faith. But it's a faith that produces fruit. This is exactly what we're talking about here. So here's where he's going to shock us a little bit. He says, you believe that God is one. 
Now, that was what every Jewish person would confess a couple of times a day. And it is from, of course, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, where any good Jew would make this statement, especially at the start and end of the day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He says, you say that. You say. You believe this, but you're saying it. That's all it is is saying. With me? You believe that God is one. You do well. Hey, that's good. That's good. But then he introduces, besides dead faith, there's also this, woo, demonic faith. <laughs> Read the rest of the verse. He says, you believe God is one. That's what you believe and you say it. Good. I got bad news for you. Are you ready for it? The fallen angels, the demons, they also believe that. And they even have an emotional response. They shudder. At the, and they're in awe of a fear of God and who he is. He switches gears here. And he says, if all you have is mental assent, then you're no better off than the demons. They even believe this. So, you know what? Scripture tells us quite a bit, of, not a lot, but you know enough, about the fallen angels who are also called demons. Can I just show you a few things? That we know that the fallen angels, the demons, actually believe because of Jesus' encounters with them from Scripture. Okay, let's take a quick look at it. We know that they believe in God. There are no, listen to me now, <laughs> there are no atheist or agnostic demons. And they also believe in the deity of Christ. They actually bore witness of his sonship. We're going to look at that verse in a moment. They also believe in the existence of a place of banishment from God and punishment. We're going to see a verse on that. And they also recognize Jesus as the judge who will judge the world. Okay? Look at this. They are not atheists or agnostics. They believe in Jesus as the Son of God. In Mark 3.11, Jesus was dealing with an unclean spirit, which is a fallen angel, which is also called a demon. And it says, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before who? Jesus. And cried out, you are the Son of God. And he told them to shut up because he didn't want people believing because of them. But they couldn't help it because it's true. All right, there's a whole lot more we say on that. They also believe in the existence of a place of banishment from God and of punishment because when Jesus was dealing with the unclean spirits in Luke chapter 8, verse 30, says, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for we are many demons, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss is the bottomless pit. It is a place of confinement and punishment. They didn't want to go there and they knew he could do it. They knew, they know, they know this is a real, they weren't making this up. This is a real thing. They also recognized Jesus as the judge. In this same scene, Matthew describes this, that Matthew 8, 29, and behold, they cried out, same scene, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know there is a time that they're going to be punished. There's a judgment day coming. And they asked him if he had come. And if he was going to do that. And send them into the abyss. That if he was going to punish them. Before that appointed time. Because they knew he could. Because he's the judge. Are you seeing this? 
All right. So if those are the only things you believe, you know better off than they are. It's not saving faith to believe and even have an emotional response and tremble. A person can be enlightened in his or her heart and mind, stirred up in their emotions, and still be lost. Okay? All right. So let's finish up with the right kind of faith. Are you ready? It's what we're going to call a dynamic faith. Dynamic means it's a living faith. The living faith is faith that is real. It is faith that has a power to change. It is faith that receives the grace of God and trusts totally in Him. It's faith that does produce a changed life. You know, we talked the difference between belief and faith. I always, I'm going to keep saying this because it's just good. It's just the difference between belief and faith is belief says, I believe that bridge will hold me up. Faith walks out on the bridge. Huh. It's the example I've used with several people. One of the most famous uh, Justin Jordan uh, was was uh, Grandpa Ellis, uh, and you know as we talked about it. He's just like, I wish I could have faith. I wish I could have faith. And I told him that story about how that we were building the buildings, you know, and they were doing these skyscrapers, and some guy run a wire all the way from one to the other, and that. Um, and, and, and the law was trying to be, you know, going to arrest you when you get down. But he was up on there and he walked from one building to the other and came back and the crowds cheered. And since they were building, he says, how many of you believe that I could take this wheelbarrow full of bricks and that I can push them to the other side and come back? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we believe. He pointed to a guy and said, do you believe I can do this, sir? He says, yes, I believe it. Go for it. He dumped the bricks. He said, then get in. And that's what I said. I said, you just going to have to decide. He had said, I wish I could have faith. I said, you just need to decide. Do you want to get in? Do you trust him enough? So you can say, I think you can do it, but faith gets in. You're committing everything to him. You're trusting totally in Christ. I remember when I said that, Ellis stood up, turned around, and knelt down. It was a powerful moment. It's like, I'm getting in a wheelbarrow. And I've used that illustration so many times. That's what living faith does. It's about trust. It's based on the word of God. Real faith accesses power, the grace of God that changes lives and is based on the word of God. Romans 10, 17, Paul said this, faith comes what? From hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Your faith, you're never gonna come to faith and you're never gonna grow in the faith without the word of God. When we do other stuff and we bypass teaching and understanding and applying this, we are wasting our time. We're not gonna grow, you can't grow. It's all connected to the word that the spirit of God authored, the word of God. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. It involves the whole person. Listen to me. Dead faith only touches the intellect. Demonic faith touches the mind and the emotions because they shuddered. But dynamic living faith involves the will. Did you see that? Dead faith involves the mind. Demonic faith involves the mind and emotions. But living dynamic faith involves the will where you make a decision to trust him and believe in him with everything in your heart. The, and, and it involves the whole person. It involves your mind. It involves your heart. It involves your will. Because when you have true faith, the mind understands the truth. The heart desires the truth. And the will acts upon the truth. You act upon the truth. You believe it so much you do something about it. Now, Abraham is a great example of this. He goes on to say, 
Uh, you want me to show you? Do I have to go further and prove in verse 20? You, you foolish person. Now, the word foolish there, so how am I supposed to call people fools? Well, it's a word in the Greek that literally means empty-headed. That's what it means. You empty-headed person. How far do I have to go to get you to understand? He says, to show you that faith apart from works is useless. As he brings up Abraham, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? On the altar, You see that faith was active. Did you see that? What was active? Faith was active. Faith was active means faith was working. Faith that works. So he's a great example. Paul also used him. It's amazing. They both pick Abraham as an example of real faith that works. Paul said this. We're justified by faith. We're saved or justified by faith. I'm going I'm to bring Paul in here so you can hear him too, okay? Come on in here, Paul. Oh, there you are. Romans 4, verse 2. It says he, Paul says, for if Abraham was justified by works, that'd be works without faith, right? By just doing stuff. He has something to boast about. There we go again about that boasting. But not before God, because he could just say, I did it myself. Didn't need your help. We know that wasn't true. It says, for what does the scripture say? We'll go bring out some Old Testament. Here's what it says. Abraham believed God, and it was crowned or credited to him as righteousness. He believed God. That is, he had faith in God. That's what it was about, faith. Next, next verse, verse 4. He says, now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, right? If you're working, what you get in payment for your work was what was owed to you. God doesn't owe salvation to you. If you could work to get it, that means God owes you. And that's what he's saying here. He says that uh, wages are not counted as a gift, if that were true, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust in him, there's your faith, trust, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he said if it was works, God would have owed it to him. But it wasn't works. It's because he trusted him. And because he trusted him, God forgave him and gave him the gift. And it was all of God's glory. He didn't earn it. And God credited him righteousness because of it. Abraham's obedience. Are you still with me? This is heavy stuff. Abraham's obedience then was what proved that he already had real faith. It wasn't the works it was the faith being active and doing something. His obedience proved he already possessed saving faith. Let's go to verse 11 in Romans 4. He says, he re- we'll talk about even that whole sign of circumcision, which I'm sure he wasn't crazy about. He received the sign of circumcision, talking about Abraham, as a seal of the righteousness that he had, how? By faith, while he was still uncircumcised. When he said, I believe you, God, I'm willing to trust you. It says that God credits him for righteousness. That's before he had been circumcised. But because we know it's real faith, he said that's why he went ahead and did it. It shows that he really meant when he said he believed God. Had he never gotten around to it, you could have legitimately questioned whether Abraham really believed God and had faith. So this is what Paul brings out, which is similar to what James is teaching. Paul also taught, just so you know we're on the same page with everybody, that true, living, saving faith produces something in and through our lives. I'm going to throw about two more verses at you. Ready? Catch them. You ready? Here they come. Titus. Paul writing to Titus. Titus in chapter 1, verse 16. He said they, and in the context of this, who are they? Well, they, he's talking about the unbelieving. Unbelieving. Remember belief and faith? Uh, They are people who do not have faith. Those who are the unbelieving, those who don't have faith, profess to know God. That's what James is saying. 
But they deny him by what? By their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow, Paul, he doesn't mm, mess around, does he? So see what Paul is saying, the same thing as James, really. They're not saying opposite things. That the unbelieving say they know God, but there's no works, right? And in verse three, chapter 3, verse 8 of Titus, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist. He's telling Titus, when you're teaching, I want you to insist on this, so that those who, believe, who have believed in God, there's faith, may be careful to do what? Devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. So James and Paul are saying the same thing. Real saving faith that is alive will produce some fruit in your life. So here it is. Let's wrap it up. Faith is trusting, submitting, relying totally upon Christ. Faith is the root of your salvation. You're not saved by works. You're saved by trusting and receiving God's grace by faith. It's the root of your salvation. Works are the fruit of it. Without the root, you don't produce fruit. Okay? Don't get that flip-flop. It's about trusting, believing, submitting, relying on him so much so that you are passionate. You are passionate to continue. You have a desire to want to discover more. You want to be in his word. You want to know him more. You want to pray more. You want to deal with the things in your life that aren't what God wants them to be. You have a hunger and a thirst to learn, but it doesn't stop with teaching and knowledge. You want to apply it and live it. Abraham proved it was real in his life when he trusted God so much. That's what James is saying. He trusted God so much, he did something he didn't want to do. Verse 21, he offered up Isaac. Remember that story? He didn't want to do that, but he trusted God so much that he did something he didn't want to do and didn't really understand, but he trusted God so much that he did it. And Hebrews later tells us that he believed God so much that through Isaac would be his seed, that even if he killed him, God would bring him back to life. Read it in Hebrews 11. It says in verse 22 again that his faith was active. So when later he says that a person is justified by works and not faith alone, he points out before that his faith was active. So what he's talking about is that real faith is a faith that produces works. Faith that's all by itself is dead and it's not real saving faith. That's what his language means right there. And that's why he says God credited him as righteousness and brought him into that special relationship where he was called a friend of God. Now understand verse 24, he says that we're not saved by a faith that produces no action. Once again, that's what he said is only a said faith or a dead faith. So Abraham's a great example of what real faith does. And so Abraham, you say, well, Abraham was perfect, man. Abraham, you know, he's our patriarch. All right, let's pull somebody else out. How about a prostitute? Remember Rahab? We just finished up our study uh, through the Jordan River rules, and uh, you know, we had some lessons on this. Rahab, you know, this is somebody who had heard about God, we found out, but she was an outsider. She was a Gentile. She was a sinner. She was a whore. I'm sorry, but I've got old King James on you there. <laughs> That's who she was. And listen. Our past does not define us. And it bothers me that she keeps being referred to as the prostitute. But the Bible's want us to know that God didn't look at her that way anymore. But you need to know where he brought her from. If you know the story, you're going to be praising God. So he says, yeah, Rahab, who'd been a prostitute, she showed how she had faith in God because she hid those men. And when she hid those men and the officials came, she put her own life at risk. 
She believed God so much she was willing to put her neck on the chopping block. So that's how we know she really believed. Uh, she did something about it. Oh, yeah. And then after that, we see it because she joined God's people. God delivered her, saved her from the destruction that's coming to Jericho. And she joined God's people. She married one of them. And she even became part of the lineage of David and of the Messiah. You read through the genealogy, she's there. God says, I'm not going to just bring you out. I'm not just going to connect you to my people. I'm going to make you a part of that promise I made to Abraham of being one of the very ones through whom the Messiah is going to come into this world. That's our God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says this. Um, yeah. She's an example, living faith that works. Writer of Hebrews said, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute. There it is again. Just so we remember where God brought her from, okay? That's not the way God looks at her now. But she did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Writer of Hebrews says it was by faith that she did this. James tells us we know it was real faith because of what she did. Amen? All right. Let's, in conclusion... He ends by telling us just like the physical body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. It's a said faith, not a saving faith. So where are you? Do you believe and trust enough to obey? Is your faith, is it your faith that drives you to clear your schedule as much as possible, to gather around with the local body of Christ, to get up in the morning, to study the word of God, to pray? Do you love and trust him enough to obey his word even when your flesh wants to go another direction? Where are you today? Only you can answer that. Father, 